This morning I come, I, I just want to share some things with you that I hope will really profit the church, that will encourage you spiritually. And this morning, if you would, I want you to take your Bibles with me and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. One of my spiritual mentors who was a spiritual father to me was a man by the name of Bill McLeod. And Bill often would stand before congregations and he would ask the question and said, how many of you prayed before the meeting? How many of you prayed before the sermon tonight? And you'd have just a few hands that were raised. And then he would say, well, if you get a lousy message, you'll know who to blame. So understand, if you get a lousy message this morning, you'll know who to blame if you hadn't been praying for me. Because don't think for a minute, you know, that I can come with my expertise or what I understand biblically and help you spiritually. We need God desperately. And so this morning, if you would, let me just read the text. I want to begin in verse number 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. And let me read to the end of the chapter uh, I understand that most of you have ESV, which I think is a wonderful translation. And, uh, but I, I have a new King James this morning, so understand I'm in good company with Ronnie Qualls. Uh, about the only one, but anyway. No, it's, it's good. Let me just read this text, and I think you'll see that there's not a great deal of change in the, uh, the translations. Okay, verse 9. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in the body according to that, excuse me, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for that for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh Yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, 
We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Let's pray together. Now, Father, this morning we would ask You to take the field. We pray that You would ordain this as a day of Your power. That Your people might be made willing. Father, absolutely nothing in my resources will be able to alter the character or to change the eternal destiny of a soul here this morning. And that's not a false modesty. It is the truth, resoundingly the truth from Scriptures. And so I would ask you to come. I would ask you to quicken the Word. And Lord, as we prayed so often, we would pray again, believing, believing that the Gospel would not come in mere word, but in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. Help the young people. Help the older people. Father, I pray even for the children. Who knows? That perhaps you've ordained this time to draw them into the kingdom. And I pray, Father, that you'd open their hearts, give them repentance and faith, give them clarity of understanding, all of us clarity of understanding. And I pray, show us Christ in the midst of it all. In his strong name we pray. Amen. This morning I would direct your attention, please, back to a very formidable text. A specific passage of Scripture, a verse, verse 17 Chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, you know a very basic law of biblical interpretation is that when you see the word therefore, that transitional word, you always ask yourself the question, what is therefore, therefore? It reflects back onto a previous thought, something that has been previously conveyed. And Paul is saying, in the light of everything that I've shared with you thus far in this epistle, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Now understand this morning, the very essence and heart of salvation is being in Christ. You know what that denotes foremost? God must do something for you. Even in Reformed camps and Reformed churches, there are people who still go back to what they did, what they defaulted to when they had an interest in the Savior's blood. And so it was all as if they could manipulate heaven, and that's what translated from the darkness, kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of the Son He loves, is what they did. It was their merit. But to be in Christ, it means God must do something for you. It's like a friend of mine was on the plane. He talked to this gal, 
She said she was going across the United States to meet with her boyfriend. They were going to live together. And she claimed to be a Christian. And so he began to press her with the gospel. And he asked her the question, has God ever done anything for you? And she was perplexed. She did not know what he meant. And see, understand this morning, there is such a thing as glorious divine initiative. Has God ever come and done anything for you? Has he opened your heart? Has he created a rapt attention toward the atoning beauties of Jesus Christ? Has he shown you your sin Has he caused you to turn from your sin and cast yourself in simple childlike faith upon that Savior? Has God done anything for you? This is what leads to being in Christ. Now, something else this morning. He said if we're in Christ, we're a new creation. Do you understand that conversion does not compartmentalize the fruit of regeneration. In other words, if God has touched you and changed you, every area of your life experiences some measure of alteration. You think differently. Your perspective is different. You talk differently. Yes, I understand there is growth and there is discipleship, which is vital to the life of the believer. But understand this morning that there is the seed planted where there is potentially the power to change everything in your life. Where you walk, who you associate with, everything denotes once again a new creation. And the outflow of that is... Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Listen carefully. Understand this morning that while we are a new creation and everything is altered and changed by the work of the Spirit, not everything becomes new. You say, well, that's what the text says, though. Well, let me ask you a question. If you got converted over the weekend Did you go to work on Monday morning and your boss come over to you and say, we understand that you came to Christ over the weekend and we want to acknowledge that. We want to commend that in your life by giving you a pay raise. Did that happen? That did not become new. You may have hoped that would have, but it did not happen. Uh, Let me ask you this. When you came to Christ... Did you receive, if you're married this morning, did you receive a brand new set of in-laws? You may have really hoped that would have happened, but that didn't occur either, did it? Pardon my frivolity there in passing, but understand when Paul says, Old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He's not speaking of all things in general, but rather he's making reference to the things that he has just mentioned back in chapters 4 and 5 of 2 Corinthians leading up to verse 17. Now, here's a statement before we unpack the text. Oswald Chambers made this comment. The great miracle of conversion is not the changes that other people see in you, but the changes that you witness in yourself. 
And I want to ask you a question. Can you look at your life very honestly, very objectively, and say this morning, only God could have produced that. Only God could have changed that attitude. Only God could have dealt a death blow to my deception religiously that I thought was sufficient to bring me into the kingdom of God. Only God could have made this change in this area of sanctification. I ask you this morning, listen to his words. The great miracle of conversion is not the changes that other people see in you, but the changes that you witness in yourself. Testimony. I was a lost Baptist preacher. Preached the truth. Said I believed the truth. Perhaps believed it in some measure. But yet God had never done anything for me. And the changes that I saw in my life, I made through my religious self. I did it. My motivation was to earn my acceptance among my peers. My mother, my preacher, those around me, I could talk the language, but there was no reality. And so I ask you this morning, closely inspect your life. Now, let's take the test. I want to give you six things that become new if you're a new creature in Jesus Christ. And if you would, let's begin by looking back in chapter number 4. And verse 13, chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says, And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. Now, here's the first thing that becomes new. And and try your spell. Examine yourself to see if you'll be in the faith this morning. Is there will be a new profession. Paul is referencing the words of David. And David said, because we believe, therefore we speak. Paul said, therefore, because we also have believed, therefore Have we spoken? And what did he speak? What did he believe? He says in verse 14, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. You see, he fixated his faith on the Son of God. And because of a work of God, this is what he spoke. Now, can I ask you this morning, has your Christianity, your conversion, experienced such a contagion that you found yourself constrained to speak of Him? It may not be polished. It may not be theological. But there's a constraining desire that is nothing short of supernatural that has moved you to speak for Him. Someone said years ago that the reason people don't talk about their religion is because they don't have any religion to talk about. Has there been such a heart change because you have believed that belief has been validated through what you say? 
Now think with me for a moment. Dr. F.B. Meyer, a German theologian, was at the back of his church one night greeting people as they exited the building after he had preached. He heard raucous laughter coming from the front of the auditorium. And so among the few people that were left, these two men were standing there at the foot of the pulpit, and they were slapping one another on the back. And when he walked up and inquired as to what they were laughing about, one turned to him and said, Oh, Pastor, this man was visiting our church tonight. We've been laboring together for the last six years. And we both discovered for the first time this evening that both of us are Christians. Ephemer said, gentlemen, I want you to kneel here. I'm going to pray that God will convert you. For if you've worked side by side for the last six years, and you've just discovered for the first time tonight that you're a Christian, you're probably not. I ask you this morning. It's amazing when you share things of this nature that has some cutting-edge measure to them. People respond. They look at you as if to say, where is the grace in all of this? This is a little discomforting for me. I I like more of a grace-filled message. But, friend, listen to me. If we're in Christ, things change. And one thing is we testify of him. There is a new profession. Secondly, you'll note that there is a new perseverance. I'm not big on alliterations, but it happened just naturally fall this way. So please bear with me if alliteration isn't a distraction to you. But in verse 16, Paul says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Now, it's interesting here in the context, he's talking about suffering for Jesus. He's talking about incurring persecution for the gospel's sake. And so he said, in spite of the fact that there is a deterioration, an oppression that's leading to a diminishing of life that is occurring, yet there is something of a supernatural sort within me, within us, that enables us to rise up and to persevere. I remind you this morning of the prophet Jeremiah who said, Many are the afflictions of the righteous But the Lord God shall deliver them out of all of them. You recall the words of Proverbs that says that the just man, the just woman, the righteous man or woman, they stumble, they fall seven times, but they keep rising up. Why? Because God lives in them. We become faint-hearted. When our brother talked about anxiety this morning, depression... I battle depression. My life is characterized, it seems, most of the time by melancholy. I used to justify my malady by saying, well, after all, Martin Luther and Martin Lloyd-Jones and Charles Spurgeon and William Cooper, they all were depressed. Until one day I realized that's all we had in common. 
But friend, it's amazing. You don't despair if you're in the kingdom of God. You might need some biblical counseling. You might need the exhortation of a brother or sister in Christ. You might need the warm embrace of a body of Christ. But listen to me. You don't despair if God lives in you. Paul says, we faint not. It's interesting. In the parable of the seed and the sower, you remember what caused the stony ground here and the thorny ground here to fall away and go back into the world was there was no stability of grace, no stability of faith. And interesting, specifically it says there, if you look at all three accounts of the parable of the seed and the sower, tribulation, persecution, temptation are the very things that are applied to believers that validate their faith that enables them to press on. And I ask you this morning, when, when hardship, when tribulation and temptation and persecution is applied to your life, do you press on? You see, understand, as one man put it, it's the state of the soil that determines the fate of the seed. And if God's done a work in your heart, he is able not only to sustain your life, but enable your walk with God to flourish. Not perfect, but you persevere. Thirdly, notice something else. And by the way, I, let me just let me challenge you in love here. Understand, men and women, there's such a tendency, even in our Reformed churches today, is there's a disconnect between what we hear and what we appreciate intellectually and experiential religion. Please, please exercise your attention to what's being said, and you yourself give diligence to make your calling and election sure. There have been many a soul who articulated sound theology well, that could wax eloquently and stand toe-to-toe with anyone that would debate theology. And yet, suddenly, God came, and God created such an openness in their heart that they recognized that all of their understanding and thinking was in vain because it led to nothing. Their soul was still dead and in desperate need of being raised from the dead. So I take nothing for granted when I go into Reformed churches. Nothing. There's a third thing I want you to see this morning. Please note this. In verse number 18, we say that there, see that there's a new perception of spiritual things. Notice Paul says, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal or temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He says the same thing, you'll notice in chapter 5, where he says in verse 7, For we walk by faith and not by sight. Understand, people, yes, it may not be crystal clear in your life, but when you're in Christ, all of a sudden, you have a new perception of eternal things, spiritual things. Someone said years ago that you'll never attempt the impossible until you see the invisible. 
And that's not mystical. That's not something spooky or charismatic, friend. That's the reality of it. Suddenly become keenly aware that there is a kingdom of darkness and there is a presence of God and there is a will of God and there's a purpose of God in everything providentially. Someone else put it like this, that faith is living in the unseen realities of God. And this morning, do you have a new perception? One of the great comforts in my life, literally this is almost, I've experienced a baptism of this reality is in providence, no matter what you're going through, God is in everything. He is in everything. And the problem is we focus and react so much to the hardship, to the difficulty, that we miss the reality of what God is trying to teach us in that thing. I ask you this morning, do you have a new perception of eternal things? Number four. It's interesting as you move closer to verse 17 and all these leading up to verse 17 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says in verse 14, there is a new passion for the love of Christ. The love of Christ compels us because we thus discern or ascertain or judge that if one died for all, then all Died. Now listen carefully. In my lostness, after having made numerous professions of faith, and even trying to silence the doubts and insecurities about my eternity, I acknowledged that I had been called to preach. And I felt like the young preacher, who was one of the most eloquent orators that traveled this country at one time, You know what he said in his testimony later? He said, I could not preach to others without preaching myself under conviction. And that's the way I was. So here I am doing anything I can to silence these doubts and these fears and insecurities about my eternal destiny. And so I went so far as to acknowledge publicly I'd been called to preach. I knew nothing of the love of Christ constraining me. Now, here's the thing you need to understand. We're talking about something that is profoundly experiential. It's not something you presume upon. It's not something you just assume theologically the love of Christ. But I'm talking about... Your heart is literally ravaged by the love of Christ at the moment of conversion. Romans 5, the love of God is poured out abundantly, shed abroad, the King James says, in your heart by the Holy Spirit. And you listen very carefully here now. There's 10,000 miles difference between knowing how much Jesus loves you and experiencing the love of Jesus. You're looking at something that is profoundly supernatural. And he's not talking about the love for Christ. 
Although that's a reciprocating effect when you're a new creature in Christ. But he's saying that God makes you keenly aware through the supernatural work of conversion how much Christ loves you. We thus judge. We thus discern. It's a spiritual perception of how much Jesus loves you. I marveled recently. I, I, I tell you, you know, these just things, I mean, they're so elementary to you guys. But, I mean, to me, I mean, they're profound. But, but suddenly, God just showed me one day. I said, you know, I'm quite enchanted with the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And I'm very enamored with the fact that, that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. But I tell you, friend, wonder of wonders, Jesus loved me. Me. And he validated that in that he, by initiative for his own glory, the love of Christ was shed abroad in my heart by the work of his spirit. So I ask you this morning, perhaps you could identify with my days where I want to do anything I could to ensure the acceptance of my peers. But the thing that motivated my Christianity was fear of man and love of self. I knew nothing of living my life for his glory to the praise of the glory of his grace. Has that ever happened to you? If it hasn't, seek you the Lord while he may be found. Give yourself no rest until you find a refuge in the reality of saving faith. Look at number five. It's the very next verse. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 15. And that he died for all that those who live, speaking of dying for his people, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him. Here's another thing. There will be a new purpose for living. When a person is religious, although they have good intention in their life and they're doing all they can to serve the master, but yet they know nothing of the reality of saving faith, friend, really everything, if they'd only closely examine, and sometimes they don't even have that ability because they have not the spirit, the truth of the matter is, is everything in their life revolves around self. Their whole life is characterized, even though it's very religious and moralistic, it is characterized by a self-centric disposition. But when a person finds faith in Christ, knows the reality of that saving power, listen, suddenly God transforms a self-centric person into a Christ-centric person. Once again, let me say, we're not talking about perfection, but we're talking about perseverance. I'm walking through a cemetery in Ohio. The church is down at the base of the cemetery, and I walk each day up around through the cemetery. Some of these graves are like a couple hundred years old. But I noticed one day that there was a 
a fresh, a freshly dug grave. And they apparently had had the funeral, but they had already had the grave marker erected there. And they had the guy's name and the day of his birth and the day of his death. And underneath those dates were these words. He had it his way. And I thought to myself, if that's really true, and that was his living legacy that he had it his way, that man is burning in hell. Because, friend, listen, everything doesn't revolve around you when you come to Christ. There's a new purpose for living, and the purpose is holiness. William Gnall, who wrote that excellent treatise, The Christian in Complete Armor, from Ephesians chapter 6, he said, Say not that you're born of God, or that you have royal blood flowing in your veins, Unless you can prove your pedigree by daring to be holy. I ask you, is there a pattern of holiness that characterizes your life? Dear people, listen, I caution you before we close here. Don't focus on your performance, but rather would you please focus on his loving propitiation. Christ has fully satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf. And once it becomes a reality in you and begins to resonate, your life takes on a whole different dimension. Then finally, one more thing. You'll notice in verse number 16, Paul said, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, and he says something interesting. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now, what's he speaking of? He's speaking of his salvation. He's speaking of conversion. Yet now we know him thus no longer. You see, here's the sixth and final thing that becomes new, brethren, is you have a new perspective of who Jesus is. Paul knew Christ after the flesh, his reputation, miracle-working prophet, Jewish demagogue. People followed this man, and as a result of this man's influence, it spawned a movement that Rome was determined to crush. And so he knew him as a mover of sedition against the Roman Empire. That was Paul's perspective of Christ before his conversion. But now that he's saved, he said, henceforth know we him no more. He sees him as Savior, Redeemer, Master, his righteousness. His friend. Now he knows him after the Spirit. And it's not just an intellectual, once again, grasp, friend. It's something profoundly experiential. You know, it's sad that most people, the only picture 
of Jesus Christ that they have in their mind's eye is what they've gleaned from a Sunday school quarterly or from a picture hanging on somebody's wall in their home. And that's not what Christ looked like. They try to portray him as just this magnificent spectacle of beauty. Why, he was so common. Even before they tore the flesh from his very frame, he was so common. Like they stood in amazement and said, this can't be the Son of God. You remember what Paul said in Acts 17? He says, for as much then as you are the offspring of God, you ought not to think of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, as lacking to gold, silver, stone, graven by art or man's device. Fixating your mind's eye upon an image, a picture, can be a delusion to the damnation of your soul. Listen carefully. When you have a revelation of Jesus Christ, because God shines out of darkness and shines in your heart to give the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, friend, things are different. Everybody notices it, especially your family. Stories told of the early prospectors in our country and how they would go to the mountains to mine for gold. They were determined they were going to find gold. And they would go early in the mornings with their pack mules up into the hills and they would pan for gold. They would go in and excavate for gold. And day after day, week after week, month after month, they'd come back late in the evening. People would gather around and ask them the question, every night, did you find any gold? And they said, no, we found no gold. And one day when they went to the mountains, they found a vein of gold. It was a rich vein, enough to make them all wealthy overnight. But they knew if they went back into town and told the people of their find, the people would make a mass exodus there to the mountains to mine gold for themselves and claim part of their find as their own. So these people who found the gold, they determined we're going to conceal it from the people. So that evening, late in the evening, they came back down out of the mountains with their wagons and their pack mules. And they walked in town. The people gathered around like they'd done day after day before. And they said, did you find any gold? And they despondently, as best they could muster up, they said, we found no gold. But suddenly a phenomena began to occur. What they did is the people went to their residences as late as it was. They packed their mules, they packed their wagons, and in a maze of darkness, they made their way up into the mountains. Why? Because even though the report was they found no gold, the find was obvious upon their countenance. They could see the gold upon the reflection of their countenance. And this is my point, friend. 
When you tap the deity of God, the gold of God in the person of Jesus Christ, and you become a new creature, creation, you cannot conceal it. It has such a contagion that everybody sees and everybody senses that God is in the midst. Has God done that work for you? What am I, what am I confronting this morning? A nominal profession where perhaps your mind is filled with all this truth and all this theology and you get together with people and man, you love to wrangle with them. But that theology does not constrain you to secret prayer, to humility, to brokenness, to confession of sin, to resolving matters. When you said, I've got to be right, and perhaps you are right, but your disposition is wrong, and you must confess it and ask someone to forgive you. I ask you, has God done that work? Now, this is what we close with. Those six things that become new, Paul follows all that up in his summation statement. Therefore, if any man be in Christ... He is a new creature. These six things passed away. The whole six things took their place. In Christ, change. Therefore, once again, pardon me as I give you the statement of Oswald Chambers. The great miracle of conversion is not the changes that other people see in you but the changes that you witness in yourself. You say, wow, wonder of wonders, God has done something for me. One of the easiest places to go to hell from is a Reformed church. Let's pray together. Father, give us no rest until there is peace with you. What a difference, Lord, when we affirm peace in our own heart from a religious perspective as opposed to when you impart peace through a supernatural vein. And I would pray this morning, Lord, for anyone that perhaps you have come and you have arrested them. Perhaps, Lord, now, All the insecurity and doubt has been revived that they've been battling with on and off for years. And still you extend mercy. I pray, Lord, that there might be those here this morning that you are dealing with that would find peace through the Savior's blood. Lord, May they have the confidence that only you can give, that they pass from death into life because you have done something for them. In Jesus' name, amen.